Hello, this is episode 26 of A Socialist Reads Atlas Shrugged. My name is Jonathan Seyfried, and I am the self-proclaimed socialist doing a close read of the novel Atlas Shrugged by Ayn Rand. Today's episode is going to be in two chunks, mostly. There's a scene between Dagny and Jim, and then there's some interesting backstory about the origin of Taggart Transcontinental and its founder, Nat Taggart. All right, let's go ahead and open up the book. So in my edition, this is on page 60, we've just finished out the explanation of the San Sebastian line and what a scam it is, and now we're getting into present, and Dagny is at her desk doing a bunch of work, and she decides to place a call to Hank Reardon asking for some Reardon metal, and easy as pie, Hank Reardon says, sure. And then the phone call ends, apparently, and we have this interesting paragraph here. I'm going to read the whole thing. Quote, the thought was a point of support. She leaned over the sheets of paper on her desk, finding it suddenly easier to concentrate. There was one thing, at least, that could be counted upon not to crumble when needed. Unquote. So what's the one thing? Well, it's Hank Reardon. So what we're starting to see is a buildup of some simpatico between Hank Reardon and Dagny Taggart, and that will only continue and grow stronger. But then we have James Taggart coming in, and this is quite an amusing scene. I think the scenes between Dagny and Jim are pretty much always hilarious, and this one is is no exception, where basically Jim has not been reading any of the reports coming out of the Department of Operations and so has no idea why there is a wood-burning locomotive, and he's just sputtering with frustration and shock, and Dagny is just a cool cat, just taking it all in and not giving him any of that emotional intensity in return. She's just very calm. But at the end of this scene, when Jim leaves, she's kind of mad that, that she's tired. So it does take something out of her, but she just gives no sign of it to her brother. And there's a couple things to point out here about this scene. First of all, we have this statement on page 61 that uh, there is not going to be any real business on the San Sebastian line. And why is that? Okay, so here we have James saying, how do you expect them to develop if we don't give them transportation? 
And then Dagny replies, I don't expect them to develop. This is an interesting sentence because it kind of depends on where the emphasis lies, or maybe it's intended to have both meanings. But you could think of it as saying, I am not the one thinking about development. Don't ask me. Or you could read the sentence as saying, I don't have an expectation of their development. I don't think they're going to develop. It's not my expectation that they will ever develop. And then James responds, well, that's your personal opinion. And once again, we have the reaction to fact. We saw this before when there was a discussion about Reardon Metal that James is accusing Dagny of having an opinion as opposed to having knowledge, which is, of course, sexist in this context and very irritating. And the sexism continues further down the page when there is the innuendo that Jim throws at Dagny about how she had been a an unchaste woman with Francisco Danconia, that basically she had had affairs with him and therefore was basically... Well, this is slut-shaming. I mean, that's just, let's call it what it is. Because here, I'll I'll read it out. And, and the context of this conversation a little bit down the page is that basically Dagny has changed her mind about Francisco Danconia. She was very close and supportive with him in an earlier time, but it's been 10 years. And she says, look, it's been 10 years. And what is James Taggart's reaction? Quote, Oh my, how opposite. Surely you remember our quarrels on the subject. Shall I quote some of the things you said about him? I can only surmise as to some of the things you did. Unquote. So Dagny does not take the bait on that, does not get angry at Jim for this obvious disrespect and diminishment and sexism. So instead, she returns him to the topic that he came in to discuss, and they go back to discussing the San Sebastian line. She reveals that Eddie Willers found the wood-burning train, and it was so old and disused that they didn't even know what company it came from. It was just sitting around, and and the company had gone derelict. The, the locomotive is derelict, and they... They found it, though, and I guess they they got it back into operation. And so what we have next is James really getting furious about that, um, really getting angry about how there's junk on the San Sebastian line. And Dagny says that the reason that she's moved all of the high-quality things off of that line is... Quote, so the looters won't have too much to loot when they nationalize the line, unquote. So I talked about the perception that's being created about Mexico and about its socialist government, and it's the big bugaboo and the place where the looters are running wild. 
And here we just have a line about, oh, I think they're going to be taking all of this when it's nationalized. And what you have to keep in mind, and, you know, something I'm going to talk about again with the Nat Taggart story, is that when you are reading about Mexico, in the early 19th century, you have to keep in mind that Mexico was exploited by companies in the United States. And at the time of the Mexican Revolution in the early 1900s, one-third of the land in Mexico was owned by United States companies. Do you really think that any country should tolerate that? I mean, just imagine if another country owned one-third of the land in the United States. I don't think we would be comfortable with that state of affairs. And so this whole business about, ah, it's going to be nationalized, it's going to be nationalized, it's looters, it really is ahistorical. It's ahistorical. It does not take into account the context and the events that really shaped a lot of the history that took place, a lot of the decisions that politicians made. I'm not going to say that everything that was going on in Mexican politics was hunky-dory, but it does deserve more than just one line, one throwaway line of they're all looters and nationalization equals looting, when in reality, I think that we could agree that in certain situations, nationalizing could mean saving an industry. And in fact... (laughs) In fact, that is sort of what happened with passenger rail right here in the United States. And currently, passenger rail is run by a company called Amtrak, which is a government corporation. It's owned by the government, but it's run as a corporation. Why was this done? It's It was done because the passenger rail lines were going to go out of business and there wasn't going to be any passenger rail service in the United States with the advent of air travel especially. So the decisions that go into nationalizing a particular industry or a particular business, maybe not every single business within an industry, well, these can sometimes be very, very connected to historical conditions. And we'll see it again in just a moment with the story of Nat Taggart. The writing in this chapter, as well as a lot of the book, is ahistorical. It behaves as if history had not taken place. And You know, one of the things Dagny says later is that she shouldn't have to worship her ancestors. She shouldn't be trapped in who her ancestors were. And I can understand that sentiment. Yes, we should not be prisoners of history. But at the same time, if we want to understand why things are happening and make wise decisions about how to react to them and to try to understand the point of view of others who have been affected by historical events that maybe haven't affected us as much. If we want to have the wisdom of all of those things, then we really just cannot pretend that history has not happened. Well, spoken like a true history teacher, I suppose. All right, so 
Here we've got that line about the looters, and then what Jim says, still on page 62 here, is that it's just vicious rumors, just vicious rumors that there's going to be nationalization, that the Mexican government had given Taggart Transcontinental a contract for 200 years. Governments sometimes do this. They sometimes award contracts to companies for 200 years in order to maybe get a a better deal. They'll increase the longevity of the time that that company has to operate a port or something like that. So it's not as crazy as maybe it, it reads initially, but still one has to wonder about how realistic that is with with really any government sticking around for 200 years. Um, well, there's been a good run of some governments recently. We'll see what happens. And, of course, Dagny was not really saying the real reason why she was putting all the junk on the San Sebastian line. The real reason is what she says next. Quote, There's not a car, engine, or ton of coal that we can spare anywhere on the system, unquote. That's the real reason that there's junk on the San Sebastian line, that the way that Jim's friend had run the railroad as the previous director of operations had really run it into the ground, and there are all these maintenance backlogs and Also things that are just not working efficiently because they're organized poorly. And so Dagny has inherited this. She's trying to untangle that big knot. And by all accounts, she's been making progress, but then the San Sebastian line really set her back. So she puts it on Jim. Where do you want to take resources in order to improve those on the San Sebastian line? And he gets all flustered because that's exactly the kind of decision-making that he is allergic to as a person. And then he brings up responsibility again, saying, oh, yes, well, you know, you're... I'm not going to have to take responsibility for this, and you're going to have to answer for it. And she's like, these are good decisions. Yeah, I'll answer for it. No problem. So then Jim leaves in a huff, and that's the end of the day for her. On her way out, we get a little appearance from Eddie Willers, who's there in the background, and she waves to him. He's a cube of light in a corner, by the way, a cube of light. So amidst all the decay, we have these shining, lingering, bright spots in the story. Then she goes down to the concourse of Taggart Transcontinental, and there's a statue there of the founder of the company, her grandfather, Nathaniel Taggart, known as Nat. Now, this next page and a half, it, it, it drove me crazy reading it, not going to lie. I couldn't believe how ahistorical this was. First of all, there's this idea that someone in the 19th century in the United States could build a railroad without help from the government. 
Sorry, folks, that is just not possible. Why? Because during the 19th century, it was the United States military that really was at the vanguard, or if not at the vanguard, really supporting those who were conquering the land from the indigenous people who were there. And that could not have been done by a non-governmental entity because it was war. So, yes, you could send out a bunch of people, take some land, and just, you know, with a a group of friends, go ahead and do it and try to defend it. But eventually, you're going to be outnumbered, and so who's going to come to your rescue? And, of course, there's these episodes that go all the way back to the colonial time where you've got people who are pushing further and further west— going out into territory that they are not authorized to go out into, then antagonizing the indigenous people who are there, who we now know today as Native Americans. And then when they are inevitably forced to give up what they took, well, they go crying to the government And they say, come send the army to defend the land. And that's what you get again and again and again and again until until it becomes the stated policy of the United States government following the Civil War to conquer it all and to basically subsume the indigenous population into just spots of territory completely enclosed by the United States of America as a nation. So, how are you going to build a railroad that goes anywhere without having benefited from the government? And guess what? When the U.S. Army took a new chunk of territory by force, after fighting against Native Americans, they would regulate who would own that territory. Certainly, there were parcels of land that were given to people as part of, say, the Homestead Act, and those parcels, which ones were being authorized for the Homestead Act, were decided by the government. Also, the borders of the reservations were decided by the U.S. government. So when you have someone wanting to build a railroad, it seems like what's being portrayed here is that somehow Nat Taggart dodged every single piece of government land and only bought land from those who had gotten it through the Homestead Act or some other such means and bought it from private landholders, do you know how convoluted your railroad line would be if that's what you did? It would be like a meandering snakes and ladders shape. It would be crazy. So the idea you could build a railroad without having government land grants 
is completely ahistorical and would never happen. Also, let's just remember what did happen in history. I'm just going to use one example here because it's very illustrative. That after the Mexican-American War, in which the United States took about one-third to a half of the territory that had previously been claimed by Mexico, there was an observation made about the geography of the southern part of what had been agreed to at the conclusion of the Mexican-American War. And what they noticed, what surveyors noticed, was that it was still pretty mountainous at the southern part of the Rocky Mountains, and if they could just have an additional strip of land a bit further south, then it would be much easier to build a railroad. And as part of the aftermath of the Mexican-American War, James Gadsden was sent to Mexico to obtain this strip of land for a price that was not a fair price, but Mexico was a defeated power. And basically, we have the Gadsden Purchase carried out, which now establishes what is today the southern border between Arizona, New Mexico, and the nation of Mexico. So that government action was carried out for the explicit purpose of railroad building. So and and you know that that's just one gigantic example but there's also a lot of little examples where the government is working with railroad companies on obtaining land and all of the administration and regulation that goes into securing the land as property for the railroad. And so the idea that you could somehow be independent of the government as the founder of a railroad, it's just it it's just not possible. It really isn't. And not only that, but it completely obscures something that Ayn Rand is always taking pains to obscure. That government can be beneficial for entrepreneurship. In the world that Ayn Rand portrays, government is never beneficial for entrepreneurship. But we have plenty of examples. Another example is, goodness, the internet, which started out as a government project, and e-commerce has become gigantic in terms of economic output and entrepreneurship. So there's plenty of examples of this, how government can be helpful for entrepreneurship. But I just want to point out that in this story of Nat Taggart, where he starts out as a penniless adventurer and then knocks on people's doors in order to raise money for a railroad, it's just not reality. It's really not. And it obscures something about capitalism and the cooperation between entrepreneurship and government that is important to remember. 
Now we get into Nat Taggart's personality. He's so tough as nails. He's just not going to get pushed around by anybody. There's, you know, some state legislator, you know, a common villain who tries to cheat him and revokes a charter. I mean, how do you how do you have independence from the government, but you still have this business with the charters? I mean, it's just uh, it's contradictory. But anyway. Here, we have then Nat Taggart killing him because he used government in order to cheat. And, you know, we we are meant to admire this as like, yeah, that's one, one tough person. And, you know, Ayn Rand does write that people admire Nat Taggart like they would admire a tough bandit. So, all right, we're 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 not talking about somebody who went to court in order to in order to seek justice here, someone with more of a temper. And then there's this paragraph which just reads really, really awkwardly in our time, where we have Nat Taggart, instead of taking a loan from the government, which would be just the worst thing to do, he does something that is not worse. (laughs) He offers up his wife as collateral. And there's a sentence in there which says, oh, the wife gave consent for this she was she was willing to be transferred as property if nat taggart couldn't pay the money back and and what's funny is that in the next paragraph after that little story we go back to dagny's consciousness and the sentence is dagny regretted at times that nat taggart was her ancestor there's that sentence there. So I read that and I was like, whew, all right, go Dagny. You're you're really going to hold Nat Taggart accountable for treating his wife as collateral. But no, <laughs> no, that's not her problem. Uh, she doesn't have a problem with that. What her problem is, is that she doesn't want to be feeling love for anything that's not her choice and your ancestors are not your choice but nope using your wife as collateral is uh, completely okay it's it's just a sign of of how independent you are i guess uh independent from the government if not from the temptation to use your family members as bargaining chips and as pieces of of property and and you know it's an interesting choice here that Ayn Rand could have used a son like there could have been Nat Taggart's son offered up as collateral but of course that wouldn't have fit with the patriarchal historical context so you know some historical context we're going to play with and other historical context it seems is not to be admitted into the narrative all righty so the next piece here about nat taggart is about how no one could ever think of him as old because he's just so full of vitality as a builder of this 
massive enterprise called Taggart Transcontinental. So, of course, his statue is of him as a young man and not as an older man who became famous. And he's just ever, uh, ever youthful and full of vigor. And here we have another religious term coming in where Dagny uses the word exalted. So what does Dagny want to worship? Dagny worships hard work. Dagny worships the kind of pride in one's hard work. And then we've got this figure from the past, an ancestor, who embodies that and is therefore something that deserves to be associated with what is exalted. So Ayn Rand, I think, is offering up basically a a kind of token, maybe an olive branch toward religion saying, hey, if you want to worship something, I'll give you something to worship. Let's worship how awesome certain people were at building things and doing hard work. And that fits in with the whole trajectory of Dagny's character, for sure, and all the people that she is going to meet who exalt the entrepreneur, and the person who's working hard. We're going to stop here for this episode. And in the next episode, we are going to finish out chapter three. We've got two little scenes to talk about, and then we will reach the end of the chapter. This has been episode 26 of A Socialist Reads Atlas Shrugged. My name is Jonathan Seyfried. If you have been enjoying this podcast and you would like to help me cover the costs of podcasting, please consider becoming a Patreon member. The link to my Patreon is in the show notes, although sometimes I think that particular podcast applications don't have that linked correctly. The hyperlink doesn't go through. So if you just Google my name, Jonathan Seyfried, you'll get to my webpage, jonathanseyfried.art, and the link to the Patreon is there. There's some behind-the-scenes stuff and also some stories that I've written, so there's some goodies in there, also some swag, so check out the Patreon. It could be well worth joining just for a little bit each month to support me and what I'm doing here and in my other ventures. Lastly, I always am looking for people to start a conversation with me about the ideas raised in the podcast, so please don't hesitate to send me an email. The email address for the show is socialistreads at gmail.com. I will see you next time for the conclusion of chapter three. Take care.